Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together to study your word. We thank you your word is life and truth to us when it's illumined by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we are asking for that this room tonight may be holy ground because of the power and the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon us. Father, we confess to you we need that anointing. We need that anointing. We need the Holy Spirit to talk to us of Jesus. We thank you, Father, because the Holy Spirit is so selfless that he only wants to talk about Jesus. He doesn't want to talk about anyone else. Father, I pray tonight he may be given full opportunity just to lift our wonderful Saviour so high. Father, bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> we come uh, tonight to the second of two talks on the judgment of Jesus. And you remember last time we saw the bogus trials of Jesus before man. And last time I mentioned five out of the eight individuals or groups of individuals uh, who were responsible for the judgment of Jesus. Five out of the eight. Tonight we deal with the remaining three. And we move on. We've seen so far indoor events. We've seen Jesus being tried. But now we see him approaching the cross. What a victory it was for Jesus to have arrived at the cross. Have you ever thought about the magnitude of the victory of Christ just arriving at the cross? We talk so much about his victory on the cross, and that's quite right. But have you ever thought of what it cost him to get to the cross? About 1,000 years, or more than that, 1,500 years before Jesus actually came to the earth, Moses, out in the wilderness, we've read the story several times, did something rather extraordinary. He lifted up a serpent, a model of a serpent that he'd made, on a pole. 3,500 years ago he did that. And from that very day, he showed clearly how Jesus was going to die. That Jesus wasn't going to die anyway. He was going to die by being lifted up on some wood. Lifted up on the tree of Calvary. 3,500 years ago that was revealed. Hundreds of years before Christ actually died on the cross, Hebrew prophets were talking about the Messiah who was to come. And they were talking that he was going to die. But not die anyway. He was going to die by crucifixion. He was going to die a terrible death on the tree of Calvary. They were talking about it right then. Hundreds and thousands of years before crucifixion ever came onto the historical scene. Now crucifixion was invented by the Romans. They brought it in. And before the Romans were even a twinkle in history's eye, the Hebrew prophets were talking about crucifixion and how Jesus was to be crucified. Now this must have stunned the Jews at the time, if they'd understood it. It must have stunned them, because their way of, of death, their capital punishment, was actually by stoning. They picked up huge boulders and threw them at the person that had actually done wrong. But here were the prophets saying, no, he's not going to die like that. He's going to die a, a death which is entirely different. And even before the Roman Empire had had its roots developed, their means of capital punishment had been outlined in the Bible. Now, as soon as you get that revealed, it's like a live exposed wire as far as Satan is concerned. 
And Satan immediately begins attacking on that line. Now we've seen Satan's many attacks on the line of Jesus. How he tried to thwart the plan of God and break the word of God. And here was Moses and those prophets saying Jesus would die on the cross. Satan would have tried anything to stop Jesus going to the cross. Anything at all. If he can make Jesus die before he reached the cross, he's broken the word of God. Do you see the principle? And if he's broken the word of God, that means he can get off scot-free. Or he can make sure that Jesus dies some other way. It's broken the word of God. And I believe that this is the reason why the Sanhedrin and the soldiers and all the other people were so cruel and violent in their torture of the Lord Jesus. Because if their cruelty could reach a point where Jesus actually died under their torture, Satan has won. And Satan was very active in the time before Jesus reached the cross. When he reached the cross then, oh, what a victory! He wasn't on yet, but he'd reached it. But he nearly didn't make it. He'd been almost skinned alive by those whips. You remember scourging was a whip with metal bits right at the end of each thong. And he'd been whipped alive. Another few minutes, another few minutes, and he might have died. And when we see Jesus, he's been so mauled by the torture inflicted upon him that he can hardly make the last step of the journey from the praetorium where he'd been kept to Calvary itself. You imagine him dripping with blood and the soldier saying, Right, you three, pointing to the two thieves and Jesus, pick up your cross. We're going out to the, cro to the place where you're going to be crucified. And the two thieves taking their crosses on their shoulders. That was all right. And Jesus, who was normally a very strong man. You have to be strong to pick up the money lender's table. He was a strong man. He could hardly get that cross over his shoulder. That's how badly mourned he'd been. And Jesus taking the cross on. And you imagine the scene. The soldiers all around this little group. These three in the middle with their crosses. And the centurion leading leading them. And they always move fast. They had to, to get away from the crowd. They tried to get ahead of the crowd to Calvary. And there's Jesus with his cross. He says, right, march. And the soldiers start marching. Marching and marching and marching. And Jesus can't make it. He can't keep up. He's stumbling. And Satan, you imagine the oppression that must have been on Jesus as he set out on that procession through to Calvary. You just imagine it. Satan must have laid such a heavy hand upon him. What was God going to do? He had to get there. Jesus knew he had to get there. I've got to. Otherwise my beloved ones won't be saved. I've got to get there. God had to call him reinforcements. And he did it. Praise God. Would you turn to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. And I want to read verse 21. <clears throat> We've got to see everything about the cross coming in its correct order with the emphasis that God wants it to have. And beginning verse 21. And they compel one Simon Cyrenian, a Cyrenian, or Simon of Cyrene, 
who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross, and they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is, being interpreted, the place of a scar. Now that's where they were aiming for, Golgotha. And he, as the head of the body, should die in the place of the skull, the bone in the head. That's where he was going to die. That's a picture. You see, the church had been planned long before all of this. The name Golgotha was inspired by God because his son was going to die there as the head of the body. And we see Jesus coming along, stumbling. And the centurion looks behind and he sees Jesus can't keep up. The crowds will be upon him. He's got to get to that place. And ahead of him, there's a man coming from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene was the Roman capital of North Africa. This man was a Jew. His name was Simon. I always imagine him as a businessman. I don't know why. I always imagine he was a rich man. And in North Africa, they always wear these long white garments. And I think these garments that he was wearing were very white and very rich. And notice what it says. Who passed by. He wasn't part of the procession. He wasn't interested in the procession. He was a Jew. He'd come up for the feasts. He'd come to keep the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread going right through to Pentecost. That's why he'd come. What did he have to do? This rich man with his white robes on. What did he have to do with two thieves and one person that people were undecided about? And he passed by. Notice what it says. Coming out of the country. He'd only just arrived. He'd only just arrived from Cyrene. Oh, hallelujah. And you can, I almost imagine him coming towards the party. The party's going that way and he's coming towards it. And the centurion looks behind him. Jesus can't make it. And here's this man standing out. He's got white robes on. He says, oh, are you? Come here. Carry his cross. Oh, you imagine it. Look at the word compel there. Compel. He didn't want to do it. That word, actually, is, it comes from the Persian, oddly enough. And it means one who waits on the king. Hallelujah. That's right. That's exactly what he was going to do. Wait on the king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus. They had to compel him. He might have said, but look at my white robes. Look at that crude, rude cross. And look at the blood on it from his back. And you expect me to pick it up? Don't you know I've got servants of my own? And the Roman said, you do as I say. I compel you to carry that cross. And Simon got in with the two thieves and with Jesus. And he picked up the cross and he ran to the cross, to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, carrying that cross. Oh, hallelujah. And when they got there, I think those angels in heaven must have let out a cheer. Oh, they're there. They're nearly there. It's nearly done. Almost there. Oh, hallelujah. 1 Peter says that the angels rubberneck. That's the phrase used in the Greek. You know rubbernecking? Looking round to see what's happening. <laughs> round the door. And the angels were rubbernecking from heaven, looking down. It's almost done. They're almost there. Oh, the excitement that must have broken out. But have you thought of the Romans 8.28 in all this? Have you thought of it? Simon was coming to a feast day. And he ended up witnessing the death of the Lord Jesus. And we know Simon became a believer after all that. Hallelujah. Praise God. Oh, it was worth soiling his clothes. It was worth getting dirty just for that. And we've arrived at Calvary. The first stage is done. The victory has been won in part. 
And we come to the cross, the cross of Jesus, the cross of Calvary. You imagine it. You imagine it. Now we get introduced to the last three of the eight. The three who were primarily responsible for the death of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. These three, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. How amazing. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were responsible for the judgment and the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Those three. I want to take the Son first of all. Because I don't hear many people talking about how Jesus sent himself to the cross, which he did. I want to talk about the Son, first of all. Now, let's have a look at a few uh, references uh, to the fact that Jesus actually allowed himself to go to the cross. Actually, when you think of it, it's obvious. You see, Jesus could have said at any time, no, I won't. At any time, he could have called upon legions of angels. And they would have come to deliver him. A fiery chariot could have come down at any time to take him back to heaven. He could have stepped down from the cross instantly because he's God. What kept him on the cross then? He was prepared to lay aside his own power, his own glory, to stay there for you. Let's have a look at some of these. Uh, John, the Gospel of John and chapter 10. The Gospel of John and chapter 10 and verse 17. And these are the words of Jesus. <clears throat> I'm going to give you seven scriptures now to demonstrate the fact that Jesus himself allowed his death. He volunteered. Here it goes. Verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I lay it down. No man taketh it from me. Do you see that? No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of the Father. He laid down his life. Those soldiers thought they were killing him. They weren't. He was killing himself, allowing himself to die. Have a look at another. Ephesians 5 and 25. Ephesians 5 and 25. Where we get this beautiful picture of the church, of husband and wife. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. It was voluntary. He deliberately gave himself for the church. Another one. Galatians 2 and 20. Galatians 2 and 20. <clears throat> and this passage is so full of revelation, I just have to stick to the subject. <clears throat> I am crucified <clears throat> with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul was saying that. He was individual about it. Not for us. For me, he died. For me. Can you say that? He died for me. 
Not false humility. Well, I know he died for everyone else as well. He died for me. Me, in particular. Next, Titus, chapter 2, and verse 14. Titus, 2, and 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. And there it is, who gave himself for us. Back to a gospel, Matthew and chapter 20. Matthew and chapter 20. And verse 28. And again, we have Jesus talking. Uh, verse 27, first of all, And whosoever would be chief among you, let him be your servant, your slave, actually. Let him be your slave. There's a difference between a slave and a servant, as you probably know. A servant is employed by someone. A slave is owned by someone. A servant can go home to his own wife and family when his hours are finished. A slave has to remain at home all the time. Which are you, by the way? Are you a servant of Christ or are you a slave of Christ? Which are you? I just say that. that that's free. No charge for that. <laughs> Hallelujah. He wants little love slaves. Slaves. So that we can't get out and we don't try to. Oh, that's something else, isn't it? Now look what it says. Uh, that's verse 27. The one I want, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. There it is. 1 John 3 and 16. 1 John 3 and 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. You see, no one took his life from him, he laid it down for you. And we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren, just like Christ did. Last one, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. And we've seen this before in the first of the Bible studies of this course. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There it is. Christ himself was responsible for the crucifixion. He could have stopped it any time he wanted to, but he didn't choose to. Why? Because he had his eyes on you. He was so occupied by the love that he had for you, he had to go through it. There was another reason. He wanted to fulfill the will of his Father. The will of his Father. What was his Father's will? His Father's will was that Jesus died on the cross too. You imagine it. The Father's will was that he was to die. You know the picture of this, don't you, in uh, Genesis chapter 22, where you get Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham told by God, go and sacrifice your son. And I love the story because it says that Abraham laid the wood on Isaac, his son, to carry up to the altar. 
just like Jesus had to carry the cross up to the place where he was going to be sacrificed. And Isaac asked a question, he couldn't understand it. He said, but we got the wood, we got the fire, but where's the lamb, Father? Where's the lamb? And Abraham's telling words. Do you remember what he said? He said, God will provide for himself a lamb. God's going to provide the lamb, he said. God's going to do it. And Isaac must have thought, God's going to provide the lamb. And then his father took him, you remember, laid him on the altar and was about to slit his throat with the sacrificial knife. And an angel said, stop. You think of that. And sure enough, what happened? There was the sacrifice caught in the thicket. God provided. But there was a bigger picture. God himself was going to provide a lamb. And do you remember John the Baptist's words? He saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Here's the Lamb. This is the one that the Father is going to sacrifice for your sins. It's terrifying, really, isn't it? The love of the Father that he had for you. He was prepared to even consider killing his own son for you. The Father's heart oh, must have just broken to think of it, but he was determined to go through it. And Jesus was determined that he'd go through with it as well. I'm going to give just two scriptures on that. Romans 8 and verse 32. Romans 8, 32. Where it says here, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. There it is. And the other one you know very well. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only begotten son. He gave him. But there's a world of difference between Abraham and Isaac and the father and Jesus. Because an angel stopped the slaying of one. But there was no angel that could stop Calvary. And the knife of the father was plunged into the very heart of his son on the cross. And out of it flowed the love and the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. And the father was prepared to do it. And the Holy Spirit, he was there too. The Holy Spirit was involved too. Let's see that. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 14 Hebrews 9 how much more then shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So that means all three members of the Godhead were involved and responsible for the judgment of Jesus on the cross. It was the will of the Father. It was the will of the Son. It was the will of the Holy Spirit. And you think of it. If we'd been there and we'd said, Father, look what's happening to Jesus, Father. Look what's happening. Is that your will? And echoing from the cloisters of heaven would have come a resounding yes. That is my will for my son to die on the cross because I love you.
And if we tried to get up to the cross and to help Jesus down and say, Jesus, they're not going to do it to you. I'm going to stop them. You know what Jesus would have said? He'd have said, go away. Go away. I've come to this earth for this very reason. To die on that cross for you. Go away. He would have said what he said to Peter. You get behind me, Satan. I've come to this. I want this. This is my will that I die for the sins of the world. There's no one else who can. And we'd have been pushed away by Jesus. And we might have said, Holy Spirit, you stop it. You stop it. And do you know what he would have done? He'd have stopped us. He'd have come against us. Because it, it was their will to die. I remember so clearly the day when I was shattered and ripped apart by a little verse in Isaiah. I think it's worth turning to it. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And I remember thinking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I can't understand it, Lord. I don't understand this. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And here's what it says. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And the Lord, there's the Father. It actually pleased the Father's heart to bruise him. Now, he loved Jesus. The Father and Jesus were so in love with one another. But he realized that only through his Son could come salvation. He was occupied only with the people who were lost on this earth. And it pleased him to, to bruise the Son because he knew that Jesus would rise from the dead and bring many sons to glory. Hallelujah. Look at the next one. He hath put him to grief. The Father has put him to grief. There it is. And we come now to this whole vast issue of the uniqueness of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ was completely unique. You don't have to say that actually. Unique means once and for all. The only one. Now don't get this wrong. Thousands of people had actually died on a cross. Thousands had been slowly put to death through crucifixion. They had hung on crosses for hundreds of years. Alright? They'd been hanging people right from the establishment of the Roman Empire. They'd been hanging them on the crosses, dying by means of crucifixion. Many of them took three days to die on those crosses in agony. Many of them would have been beaten perhaps worse than Jesus before they got to the cross. Many of them were put on the cross uh, falsely. They were falsely accused and falsely crucified. Jesus wasn't the only one. So what was it that made his cross unique? It is the intervention of God. The intervention of God. Because it was only God who could put the sins of the whole world on Jesus on the cross. There was no other man crucified who had the sins of the whole world put on him. Now remember this, Herod, though he was powerful, he couldn't put the sins of the whole world on Jesus. Pontius Pilate couldn't put the sins of the whole world on Jesus. The Jews couldn't. The Gentiles couldn't. Satan couldn't. You can't. You can't put your own sins on Jesus. The Father did. The Holy Spirit did. And that's a unique, a unique cross. 
the unique cross of Jesus. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But God the Father did. And there was no one else good enough to die. There might have been many people who said, I'm concerned for this world. I'm so concerned for this world, I want to die for this world. But they couldn't. Only Jesus could. We're dealing with three people's responsibility as far as salvation is concerned. They were responsible for the cross and therefore for your salvation. Oh, hallelujah. Now what a secret all this is. So we see the cross and we see three operators responsible for the sins of the world being put on Jesus. Now let's get this right as well. Let's get the time scale out. The day began six o'clock in the morning. Three hours later, on the third hour of the day, Jesus was hung on the cross. And he hung there for six hours. From the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, for six hours right through to the ninth hour, or three o'clock in the afternoon. There was the time period. But it, we see it split in half. The first three hours, from nine o'clock in the morning to midday, and the last three hours from midday to three o'clock in the afternoon. And there's a difference. Now you remember Jesus talked about if a man take you a mile, you go another mile. Remember that? If he asks for a coat, you give him another coat. And Jesus did exactly that. He need only have spent three hours on the cross. But he spent six hours on the cross. For the first three, he, he was put there as a burnt offering to God. Now to refresh your memory, a burnt offering was a pleasing savour to God pleasing to God. It was a voluntary offering made to God. And for three hours, Jesus said, Father, I have done your will. And on the cross, he voluntarily laid down his life. And for three hours, he was hanging there as a burnt offering, a pleasing offering to God. Imagine that, a pleasing offering to God. But at midday, something happened. A shadow passed right over the land, and darkness occupied the whole of the earth. But at midday, something was going to happen, and God didn't want anyone to see it. At midday, three hours after Jesus went on the cross, the sun was darkened. Now, not only the Bible gives that, there are other people that give it. There's um, one historian called uh, Flagan, or Fliegen. P-H-L-E-G-O-N. Fliegen. And he writes about an event which occurred in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. And uh, you may not be fully conversant with the Greek method of uh, calendar, but that is the year to us of 33 A.D., the whole of the year 32 233 AD. And Fliegen tells of an event which occurred in that particular year. And the odd thing is, he gets it a bit wrong. He's he, writing about it after the event, but he thinks it's an eclipse. Now, if you know anything about geography, you know that when the moon's full, you can't have an eclipse of the sun, because the moon's on the opposite side to the sun. You can't have it. And Jesus died on the feast of the Passover, when there was a full moon. But Fleekin just says this. I've got it written down. He says this. 
that in that year there was a darkness more striking than any other on record, for it became night at the sixth hour, midday, so that the stars were visible in the heavens, and a great earthquake in Bithynia overthrew most of Nicaea. There it is. We also have a, a man writing in, in a few hundred years after Christ called Tertullian, who went to Rome, and he looked up records. And he found records of a great darkness about this year, which had swept over the whole earth. He finds records of it just around Europe in the Roman Empire. Darkness on the earth. Now, for three hours, Jesus had been on the cross as a burnt offering, pleasing. But something happened. Something terrible happened at midday. And God wasn't prepared to have any human sinful eye looking on what was going to happen. Because suddenly at midday, instead of being a burnt offering, Jesus became the sin offering. The sin offering for us all. That's what happened at midday. <clears throat> and at midday, every single one of your sins and my sins in AD 33 were laid on Jesus. And darkness fell all around the earth. And you know, have you ever been in a, an eclipse of the sun? You see the stars come out, the daylight goes, and a terrible hush falls over the, the land. A hush which you can almost cut, you can almost hear it. The birds stop singing, everything stops, and there's a deathly quiet. And you imagine the land, a silence fell over the land, and the sins of the whole world were put on Jesus at that time. It was no scene for sinful man to look upon. This was something very private, very private. Now if that wasn't enough, know what happened then? God the Father and God the Holy Spirit turned their backs on Jesus. Incredible. Let's uh, see about the sin offering first of all. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, very famous verse. For he, meaning God the Father, hath made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Father, it says here, made the Son to be sin for us. He didn't, he didn't have any sin. The sins were put on him by the Father. And there's another verse as well in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Galatians 3, 13. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Just this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. He wasn't a curse. Notice the word made, by the way. He wasn't a curse because he deserved to be a curse. He was a curse because he was made a curse. Who made him the curse? God did. God made him a curse for you. 
He didn't, it wasn't in, on his account. It was entirely because he loved you so much that he was actually put up on that tree as a curse. He became a serpent on that tree. That's the terrible news. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall Jesus be lifted up. Martin Luther actually talks about this passage. And he says that on the cross, Christ became the greatest sinner ever. Now that's almost blasphemous if you don't understand what he was talking about. He didn't mean that Christ had committed any sins. But he didn't just take my sins. He took your sins as well and your sins. Every one of our sins, the sins of the whole world, they were all put on Christ. And when the silence fell over the land, suddenly a roar and a scream leapt from the lips of Jesus. All the torture had left him in silence. He hadn't screamed, he hadn't cried out, he hadn't objected. All the jibes he'd left unanswered. All the torments from the crowd had just run from him. But when the crushing weight of your sins were put on him, he screamed out into the darkness. And I don't think he could have helped it. Because the crushing weight of your sins was too much. Too much. And I imagine that cry echoing around Jerusalem. Now in, in Psalm 22 it talks about my roaring could be heard. The roar, the scream, it's Hebrew for scream, a scream leapt out of his lips. The sins of the whole world put on him. And if that wasn't bad enough, to know that his beloved ones had turned their backs on him. Now remember, for all eternity Jesus had had fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There was never a time, ever, when they didn't have this love and this communion together, when they didn't experience the love and the upbuilding of one another. And your sins cut Jesus off from his beloved. Oh, the, I, the scream, I can almost hear the scream. He'd never known it before. He was cut off from God. Cut off from his beloved ones, whom he'd served, he'd done nothing wrong. And the sins of the whole world were laid on him. And the father knew. And he was the father bringing the whole weight of sin that was causing the trouble. He laid it on his son, then he looked at his son and he said, you are guilty. You're guilty. And I can't look upon you. And he turned his back and walked in the opposite direction. That's the cross of Jesus. It's not the physical pain, it's the spiritual pain that Jesus actually suffered in all of this. Now you imagine that. You imagine the break of fellowship. He'd never known anything like it before. And I can hear the echoes of the scream. You, you know the words, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've gone. Oh. He loved me that much. He loved you that much. And sometimes people say, I don't think he loves me. And they haven't got a revelation of what Jesus went through. A man who didn't love, there was nothing else that could get him through. He had to go through it for you. He had to. He was the only one good enough to do it. And he was responsible. He was responsible for it. Let's see the episode. Back to Mark and chapter 5. Back to Mark, chapter 5 and beginning verse 33. 
sorry, uh, Mark 15. Mark 15, beg your pardon, <coughs> and verse 33. Uh, uh, may I refresh your memory, by the way, in the first series of tapes I talked about the two deaths of Jesus on the cross. He died spiritually and he died physically. <coughs> by spiritual death I simply mean you are cut off from God. You remember that uh, right back in Genesis, God breathed the breath of lives into man. He became a living soul. Now, plural, lives. And in fact, uh, Isaiah says that Jesus was with the rich man in his deaths. It's plural in Isaiah. He was with the rich man in his deaths. That's uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 9. In his deaths. He died twice on the cross, Jesus. He died spiritually, and then he died physically. He died spiritually three hours before he died, physically. He was cut off from his father before he was cut off from humankind. That's the point about it. I would ask you to listen to the tape on that subject, to refresh your memory. But here he was for three hours, suffering on the cross. Here it is, verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it, they said, Behold, he, he calls Elias. Now the reason they thought that was that the Aramaic for God, Eli, sounded like the Greek, Elias, for Elijah. And it sounded the same. But he wasn't calling for Elijah. He was saying, You've left me. This is too much. This is too much. You've left me. The sins of the whole world have been too much. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. Now when Adam died spiritually, it was because he died spiritually that physical death came in. And it was the sin that Adam committed that brought spiritual death into this world. So Jesus had to die for that sin, spiritually. He had to be cut off from his Father. And the result of that is that sin need never cut you off from the Father ever again. Hallelujah. Jesus has been cut off once for all. Hallelujah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Amen. That's right. Thou shalt be saved. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus and know that God's already dealt with your sin on that cross. Glory, hallelujah. Jesus was prepared to go through all that because he loved you so much. Hallelujah. And after three hours of being the sin offering on the cross, Jesus knew it was enough. He had paid for every sin that it was possible to commit on this earth. Hallelujah. And you know, the principle with the Christian is when your job's done, you can die. And when Jesus' job was done... He died. And notice what he said before he died. It's finished. I've done it, Lord. I've done it. We're finished, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. What did he say then? I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I can't wait to get there. Hallelujah. We didn't quite put it in those terms. <laughs> but I'm sure he felt it. But I feel it. Hallelujah for him. What did he say? Father, 
Into thy hands I commit my spirit. I've done a good job, Lord. It's all done. I want to tell you something. He wouldn't have died if your sins hadn't been paid for fully. Being omniscient, he knew every sin. And he only died when they were all paid for. Hallelujah. Glory. And it only took three hours. And another three. The extra mile as the burnt offering as well. I'm glad he did that. Oh, how he loved the Father. How he loved the Father and poured himself out for the Father. Isn't that miraculous and wonderful to consider that in this crisis hour in his life, he was prepared to suffer more than was necessary. Don't ever think Jesus hasn't paid for your sins. He wouldn't have died, else. Hallelujah. It's true of you too. Unless through judgment or discipline, through unconfessed sin, you die prematurely, if you are living in fellowship with God, you will not die until your work is done. Therefore, if you die young, your work is finished. Praise God. And for you, it's face to face with the Lord. It means closer than that, actually. Closer than face to face. Your work is finished. Therefore, you know, there needn't be absolutely no sorrow. We've gone to a better place. And we're going to join them soon. Praise God. We're coming home, Lord. I've finished. I'm coming home. Amen. You don't hang around when your work's finished. Praise God. He so loves you and we so love him. You don't belong here any longer than is necessary. When your ambassadorship is finished, you do not stay in the foreign country. You go home. Oh, hallelujah. My homecoming is going to be glorious. I'm looking forward to it so much, you know. Really, I'm, it's gripping me more and more every day. I'm coming home. Praise God but not till my work is finished. Praise God. And notice, I just continue. Verse 37. Jesus cried with a loud voice. You see, people normally read that softly. I'm surprised. He cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. And notice this, verse 39. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he cried out, or he so cried out, and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, why should he say that? Here was the centurion standing at the bottom. He thought he'd put Jesus on the cross. He thought he was responsible for the death of Jesus. And he'd been watching for six hours, Jesus on that cross. And after only six hours, he hears these words. Now remember, this centurion might have seen hundreds of people crucified before. One of the dreadful things about crucifixion is that you can't die, though you want to. Your hands are held up like this. You can't die. You can't stab yourself and bring your life to an end. You see, you can't do anything about it. You're dead. And you're higher, probably, than most people could reach, and they can't come with a spear because the soldiers will stop them. And this centurion may have heard, seen hundreds of people hanging for hours and hours and hours on crosses, desperate to die. I expect that he'd heard them crying out and saying, I want to die. Death, come into me. I want to go. I can't take it anymore. And I imagine that many of them had cried out and said, kill me, please. I beseech, kill me. Kill me, go and get to kill me, please. They wanted to die. Two and a half days hanging like this and they're still not dead. You imagine it, you can't, you can't remove your life. You want to, you can't do it. But not so with Jesus. 
And this centurion must have been amazed. Because all of a sudden, Jesus says, it's finished, Lord. I'm going to die now. And he dies. And no matter what he thought before, that centurion suddenly fell in. He knew. He thought he'd killed Jesus. He knew that this man had his own life in his own hands. He knew that if anyone had put Jesus on the cross, he'd allowed it to happen. Oh, what glory is in that. He'd allowed it to happen. And the centurion suddenly turned around and said, he could kill himself. That man had power over his own life. And I believe that centurion was saved. I do. I believe he was so stunned that he just couldn't get over this. A man had actually had his life removed from him when he wanted it. This was Jesus. You see, that's what he meant. He said, no man takes my life from, from me. I lay down my life. I'm responsible for this. That's what he said. Hallelujah. Praise the name of Jesus. And I want to read that again, just at the end. Verse uh, <coughs> 39, just to see it. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Hallelujah. Oh, glory. Hallelujah. That's right. Our salvation won. And I want to repeat it. When he died physically, it was a sure sign that the sins of the whole world, those committed before he died, those committed after he died, those which you committed in all your life up to salvation, and all those you've committed since salvation and will commit, have been paid for on the cross of Jesus. He wouldn't have died otherwise. Praise the wonderful name of Jesus. That's why we can say, Acts 16.31, as I've said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever the sins of the whole world. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's just see two more scriptures on this. 1 Peter and 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And a slightly longer passage from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Beginning verse 6. And if any person doesn't know Christ, it's time that the cross was faced up to, definitely. That Jesus died for your sins, and there's no other way, for there was none other good enough to suffer for the sins of the whole world. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. You were enemies when he died for you, and he still died for you, because he loved you that much. Oh, hallelujah. And so we see the dead body of Jesus on the cross. And I like to think, you know, that Calvary blossomed at three o'clock in the afternoon. I like to imagine that every flower came out. I like to imagine that every bird started singing, because it was finished. Ahead for Christ was resurrection. He had some evangelism to do down below. He had to go and proclaim his victory to the spirits who'd been disobedient. He had to go and empty Abraham's bosom and take his conquests. All those people who believed in him in the Old Testament. He had to empty Abraham's bosom or paradise and take them up to heaven. He led captivity captive, as Ephesians 4 says. He, he had a bit of work to do, but ahead was resurrection. Ahead was glory. Ahead was glory for the Father. Ahead was a wonderful bride, the church, his redeemed, his precious one. Ahead was exaltation. He'd done a good job. Hallelujah. Praise his wonderful name. And he deserves all the exaltation we can give him. For he didn't balk at what was ahead. He went through and died for each one of us. Eight people were responsible for the judgment of Jesus. Five bogusly, falsely, three gloriously, laying down their own hearts because they loved you. Do you know, you didn't deserve to have God's heart laid down for you. You didn't deserve it, but he did it. He does deserve it. Have you laid down your heart for him? He deserves it. May we give him all honour, all glory, and all obedience, for he is indeed seated on the right hand of God, exalted in the heavens, a name higher than any other name. And at the name of Jesus, let's make sure that our knees bow. Amen.